Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 8, 2017, we discuss a featured article in the WPJ Summer Issue, Aiding and Abetting, Why Western Fundraising Fails to Stop the Spread of AIDS. We'll also spotlight other top features in the WPJ Summer Issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. No matter how hopeful things look, the inevitable is, well, inevitable. That's the lesson in sub-Saharan Africa today, as economies that only recently were heralded as African tigers have slumped in this period of relatively cheap global commodities. Through a boom that lasted roughly from the turn of the 21st century until 2015, naysayers predicted a slump would eventually come. That's the thing about predicting the inevitable. Eventually, inevitably, you look like a genius. Yet the slump that has slowed many African economies is a bit different this time. Since the 1990s, many of these nations have diversified away from commodities like oil, copper, and tin that once doomed them to long periods of stagnation. So inevitably, what came down recently is now going up again. A little context. Five years ago, the sky seemed the limit in many long-suffering African countries. GDP growth had chugged along at more than 5% across a broad swath of the region for more than a decade. It wasn't just oddities like Mauritius and South Africa, either. It was star performers like the largest country in the continent, Nigeria, the Paul Kagame fief of Rwanda, Kenya's multi-ethnic democracy, and former Cold War proxy battlefields like Tanzania, Namibia, and Zambia. Tiny Ghana, growing at double digits during the early part of this decade, was heralded by some as an economic miracle. Nigeria, Kenya, very large and very different African economies, were seen as rising stars because of their GDP growth rates and in spite of enormous internal political contradictions. Full disclosure, I co-wrote a book in 2012, The Fastest Billion, which criticized the gloom and doom typical of Western media reports from the continent and predicted that the coming century would see many African countries thrive. I stick by that prediction, but inevitably, there have been bumps along the way. If you'd asked me or my co-authors what the Achilles heel would be, we'd quickly have said commodities. Oil exporters like Nigeria, Angola, copper-dependent Zambia, mining giants like Congo, Tanzania, and South Africa have all been hit hard by what in financial circles is known as the end of the commodity supercycle. What these countries export simply is not worth as much today as it once was. But regional stars remain. Growth is already turning around from an average of just 2% in 2017 to above 3% in 2018, and some have done better. Ethiopia is expanding at more than 8% this year, Tanzania, Ivory Coast, and Senegal at around 7%. And there are broader reasons for hope, too. The boom years fueled growth in Africa's middle classes and brought demands for government competence and accountability. Drought that hit East Africa and Ebola-related costs in West Africa have both abated. Nigeria, shambolic as always, nonetheless appears to be past the worst of its Boko Haram-related violence, and commodities still do matter. Cheap oil notwithstanding, prices have recovered a bit. No, it's not East Asia circa 1980, but sub-Saharan economies are growing again. And that's good news for everyone. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran.
You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. At a time when antiretroviral drugs, ARVs, are in widespread use, AIDS continues to kill. In 2016, one million people died of the disease. HIV patients are still dying to a big extent, like before the introduction of ARVs. ARV drugs are available, diagnostics are available. So the question is, why HIV patients are still dying? From a video posted last month by Doctors Without Borders, continuing years of publicity about the lethal threat of AIDS and, in later years, the importance of new drugs to counter and contain, if not totally cure and eradicate it. Part of the problem, even some top AIDS experts say, may be that all that stress on expensive medical research and development has overshadowed simpler and less costly local approaches for reasons both ideological and financial. The good news is that last year's AIDS death toll of one million was nearly half that in 2005, and a declining fraction of the estimated total 35 million dead since the disease was first identified. But journalist and author Ross Benish argues that the array of drugs now available does not always track with some areas of significant AIDS decline, where lessons are to be learned about other important factors quite divorced from big pharma and global health organizations. An article by Benish in the new summer issue of World Policy Journal is headlined Aiding and Abetting, Why Western Fundraising Fails to Stop the Spread of AIDS, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Ross Benish, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me here. International organizations have repeatedly deceived donors to ensure ever more funding for AIDS relief, you write, and continue in the mid-1990s, large NGOs and UN agencies began to overestimate the infection rates to imply that general populations across the world were on the verge of HIV outbreaks. So to begin, do you see 35 million dead to date as an accurate estimate, and how does it square with all those prior projections? The 35 million to date seems like an accurate estimate. Most estimates place the uh, death rate um, between 30 and 40 million. As far as how it squares with prior estimates, um, prior estimates, a lot of them projected that there would be about 2 million people dying per year by 2016. But nowadays, the death rate is about 1 million per year. So prior estimates actually overshot um, where we're at today as far as the, the annual death toll. You quote a former consultant to groups like UNAIDS and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about the manipulation of statistics. Tell us about Elizabeth Pisani and what she wrote about creation of the Innocent Wives thesis from one small study. Her book is titled The Wisdom of Whores, Bureaucrats, Brothels, and the Business of AIDS. So Elizabeth Pisani is a an epidemiologist who also has a journalist background, so she's worked for places like Reuters, but as well as being a consultant for UNAIDS and the CDC. And the reports she worked on, she, she dubbed them beat-ups because she would overstate, not just she, you know, the team she worked with, they would overstate the conclusions of these reports in the executive summaries, and they would send this out to journalists, and journalists would package it up and, and you know, broadcast this message out, even though it was a bit misleading, which was done intentionally so. 
So, for instance, uh, reports would say things like, the virus is firmly embedded in the general population among women whose only risk behavior is having sex with their own husbands. But if you would look at the data, you would see that fewer people had HIV than the report um, implied, and the way it spread was much more nuanced because the um, husbands inflicting it on their wives wasn't always the way that it would spread, even though it was presented in that way. Uh, talk about exaggeration of a, that, that study I, I came from Pune in India. Talk about exaggeration of another flawed study from Indonesia. So there was a study in Indonesia that it suggested that um, 8 million Indonesian men buy sex every year. And then from there it concluded that, well, since there's so many men who are um, soliciting sex work, therefore these men are infe infecting their spouses. So you're going to have millions of infected wives due to all this sex work going on. But in reality, um, deeper in the report, it showed that only about 16,000 Indonesian women were potentially at risk because most of the men who were soliciting prostitutes neither had HIV nor a wife. But that information was conveniently left out of the executive summary of these reports. Beyond the statistics, say more about the emotional narratives that were concocted to attract funds. So whether it's conscious or not, the people who write these reports have an imperative to drive funding and attention towards AIDS relief, which um, you know, sounds like a very noble goal on its face. But you're not going to get donors to open up checks, checkbooks by um, you know, giving very nuanced takes about the dangers of uh, lack of circumcision or multiple concurrent partnerships. What's going to appeal to people's senses and their wallets is talking about anecdotal stories of babies who were born with the virus or you know, the, these women who were cheated on by their husbands who got the virus from a prostitute. And while those anecdotes certainly exist and those stories are all tragedies, they don't represent the uh, majority of the transmissions. But telling a more uh, scientific and, and nuanced story isn't what you know, wins you over at charity balls. A former chief of surveillance for the World Health Organization, James Chin, also admits that advocacy often ignored evidence that AIDS was in decline. Tell us what Chin said and the example provided by UNAIDS executive uh, director uh, Peter Piat, his, his rhetoric and the financial reward in terms of spending on AIDS. James Chin essentially wrote that these groups like UNAIDS were exaggerating the infection rate so that they could create alarm and alarm would create a demand for more funding. And the examples he cited were um, Peter Piot, who ran UNAIDS at the time, was at a conference in Manila and he said that HIV will cut through Asian populations like a hot knife through cold butter. Um, in a science article um, that Piat co-authored, there was like vague implications that AIDS could affect one out of three adults in Africa and in Asia, but you know, nowhere in Asia had any rates that high. And uh, you know, despite UNAIDS saying that the epidemic was going to rapidly spread to China and Russia and India, that did not happen either. But the 
uh, rhetoric was effective in many ways because by the time UNAIDS admitted that there were 33 million people with HIV and not 42 million people with HIV worldwide like they had previously implied, $10 billion a year was being spent on AIDS relief by that point. When you talk about a turnaround in statistics in 2007 uh, that uh, was finally admitted that it was declining and not increasing, and how Piat justified his earlier warnings? So Piat was in a pretty tough position. You know, he had to raise awareness for AIDS relief, and he told a reporter that his job was to make sure that AIDS was taken seriously, and he, and he did that. Um, in, in his memoir, he, he wrote how there was you know, no tolerance among many of these groups for anything other than advocating for more money, and a bunch of non-AIDS groups were able to latch onto that and get money for uh, you know, education and uh, infrastructure and all sorts of other political causes got embedded into AIDS. So. I, it, it's a really tough position because if, if he, um, you know, didn't raise alarm, there, there wouldn't be as much attention. But you know, he also had to come to grips that um, there were all these imperatives outside of science that were influencing the organization. Well, let's talk about that. One might argue that exaggeration in the war on AIDS is no vice. But you say the misleading projections and narratives drew funds to pharma giants and relief agencies at the expense of less costly homegrown solutions, especially in Africa. First, talk more about the financial imperatives of the corporate beneficiaries, especially in the U.S., and the difficulty of actually getting government data about how, mu how much money flowed to them. Well, the financial imperatives, I, I think, are, are pretty clear when you, you look at the billions of dollars that the U.S. spends on AIDS relief and the fact that uh, 22 of the 25 largest recipients of those funds are companies based in the U.S., and up to 90% of the aid we spend runs through U.S.-based organizations. So these uh, you know, biomedical companies that we've put at the forefront of our relief efforts, uh, have incentive to, um, you know, encourage people to rely on condoms. And, and it, it, it's, there's these political and, and business um, imperatives that people have to uh, make sure that we're reliant on pharma products rather than getting people to consider um, less risky sexual behaviors. And part of that is because Pharma products are easier to show evidence of. Um, you know, uh, if, if you are giving a bunch of drugs to someone, um, there's, a, you know, there's a photo op opportunity. Um, you, you can measure that more accurately. If you're promoting a behavioral change message, um, you know, you're relying on a lot of social science where there's a lot of invisibility to the behaviors that are occurring. Uh, and I know, um, you know, it sounds a little bit conspiratorial to say that there all these big pharma interests are pushing us to rely on their products rather than cheap and effective things that are, uh, come from African communities. But um, the PEPFAR, the, the entity that controls all the aid spending in the U.S., um, the first person that the president appointed to head up PEPFAR was the former CEO of a huge pharma company. So it's like, you know, it's almost difficult to not see um, th this tie-in. And 
it's also frustrating that a lot of this information as far as where this money goes and who gets it and how it's used is not easily accessible online or in any other public format for that matter. You have to FOIA it a lot, and that's evident when you read a lot of these think tanks who study this stuff that they, they'll express minor frustrations in their reports that if you read between the lines, you can see that they're having to do a lot of extra legwork to get very basic information that um, is ultimately coming out of taxpayer dollars. FOIA being the Freedom of Information Act request. Tell us about some notable local approaches effective despite underfunding. So countries like Zimbabwe and Uganda stand out. They had pretty large declines in AIDS prevalence. Um, Uganda was at like 21% uh, HIV prevalence throughout their whole country back in the 90s, and it got down to 6% in 2002. And Zimbabwe was at 26% and got down to 14%. And the way they did it was through uh, grassroots efforts, um, you know, relying on religious organizations, um, local media organizations, a lot of nonprofit organizations to really educate and spread the message that having multiple partners was their biggest risk factor to spreading the virus because in the early days of um, when, you, when you get the virus, when you get HIV, you're much more contagious than you are at a later date. So if you have um, a string of partners monogamously, um, you're much less likely to spread the virus even if you have more partners than if you um, let me, let me rephrase that. If you have a string of partners and you're doing them one by one, you're less likely to spread the virus than if you have a series of partners all at once. And that doesn't matter if how many partners you have in the string of partners going on because three years down the road, your viral load is going to be so much lower than it is at that initial infection. And that's something that gets lost on so many people. So uh, Zimbabwe and, and Uganda, um, you know, they, they really – were effective in reducing transmission rates, even though they received a lot less funding than countries like South Africa, which haven't been that successful. On the other hand, you think it's wrong uh, to uh, believe that the effectiveness of an approach in one place, condoms in Thailand or Cambodia, for example, can easily be projected worldwide. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have to adapt the epidemic uh, to your prevention strategy. So the U.S., when we started to fight AIDS in other countries such as Africa, we just kind of took the approach that we applied here, which was um, condoms for prevention and antiretrovirals for treatment. But the virus that was spreading here, the epidemic that we had here was you know, heavily concentrated among gay men and IV drug users and hemophiliacs. Um, that's much different than it was in Cambodia and Thailand where it was um, sex workers and, and, and their clients spreading it. And that's much different in Africa where the virus is in the whole general population being spread through heterosexual couples. So depending on you know, the way the virus is transmitted and through what sectors of the population, you have to build a strategy around that. But in the U.S., um, we took a long time to do that. And I heard some amusing anecdotes, um, well, actually some tragic anecdotes when I was reporting on this. I heard from some AIDS researchers that when they were in Africa in the early days of the epidemic, they would get these pamphlets that were about the dangers of uh, 
fisting and rimming, you know, these uh, sexual behaviors that were more common among gay men in the 1980s than they were among African couples today, but it was just straight projected out of like, you know, 1980s San Francisco grassroots organizations to Uganda without taking into consideration all the cultural context that influences the transmission rates there. I was interested also that uh, the use of condoms in Thailand and Cambodia were, were tied more directly to their sex trade, which was more easily policed, controlled, and uh, kept yeah. to uh, health standards that didn't uh, apply to general populations. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that just because uh, you know, condoms aren't the greatest first relief effort in Africa that they should be avoided or that we should be doing an abstinence only or anything like that. In epidemics where um, you can control the, the, the population a little bit more, you, you have more um, data on who's being affected, like sex worker clients, condoms are pretty effective, the data shows. Another important non-funded factor in the decline of AIDS, you say, is the trajectory of epidemics generally. Say more about that. Many epidemics, you know, regardless of if it's um, you know, HIV or not, they, they follow a trend. Like they, they start slowly, but then they reach this point where it takes off rapidly and then after that, there's a, a gradual decline. I mean, there's a, there's a gradual decline, and, and that's because the most susceptible people get infected early. And after um, those people die, there's fewer people who have that outbreak. So a lot of the um, credit that groups are taking for preventing AIDS could be seen as part of the natural course of an epidemic. James Chin, um, the epidemic tracker that we referred to earlier in this podcast, he said that groups like UN AIDS were riding to glory on the downslope of the epidemic curve. So essentially taking credit for what was going to happen naturally. You also report that religion, morality, and ideology limit some cultural behavioral approaches to AIDS prevention and containment by organizations controlling key funds. Say more about what you call zealous orthodoxy. First on the right. Okay. Well, on the right, I think it's pretty clear that there's some very powerful and well-funded church organizations that, uh, and abstinence-only organizations that have hooked their claws into AIDS relief money, and they insist that we promote all these morals to uh, residents in other countries if we are going to give them any money at all. But um, what's problematic about that is abstinence-only education has not been proven to be effective at reducing HIV transmission rates or uh, teenage pregnancies or, you know, many other adverse outcomes that people think it will have an effect on. So that, that, that's one thing that happens on the right. And an example from the left, specifically Malcolm Potts, first medical director of Planned Parenthood International and former CEO of Family Health International, which ran condom campaigns in Africa for decades. So Malcolm Plotz um, had an interesting interview with Helen Epstein in, in her book, The Invisible Cure, in, in, in that 
he um, is pretty frank ab about admitting that his organizations were um, fearful of promoting programs that focused on fidelity because if the Christian right was promoting it, it, it must be wrong. And I, I think there's you know, a lot to that, that, that there's a big um, contingent of people on the left who are kind of um, blinded by a, a love of condoms and, and drugs when it comes to AIDS relief prevention, that they um, are hesitant to get into behavior change programs because they don't want to be uh, the people that tell anyone that their behavior should change. You know, they don't want to acknowledge um, sociological differences or, or um, you know, differences in, in behaviors across various ethnic groups. It's the type of stuff that makes people uncomfortable and in the wrong crowd you can be condemned for acknowledging some of this stuff. And I, I think that's part of the reason why we've relied very heavily on biomedical solutions and have skirted some of the more local homegrown things that have come out of these African countries. And basically you say left and right have a, a, an, an uncomfortable feeling about talking about sex at all when sex was, uh, you know, so central to the, the spread of AIDS. It, it's pretty incredible, actually, reading some of these reports. You would, you, would, uh, you would think we're not talking about a sexually transmitted disease at all. All the, all the reports talk about education and resources, poverty and opportunity, but at the end of the day, this is a virus that is predominantly, not only, but predominantly spread through sexual contact. And by not acknowledging that, it's a lot easier for these groups to hide their agendas, whether they're on the right and they believe people should withhold from sex for the rest of their lives until they find the person that they want to be with forever, or if they're on the left and they don't want to acknowledge um, you know, any uncomfortable behaviors that might be occurring within specific subgroups. Or, or, or limit anybody's ability to engage in those practices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As the actual level of HIV infections and AIDS death decline, do you see greater competition for decreasing funds or a retreat by powerful pharma and aid groups that might give a bigger share of a smaller pot uh, to less costly local approaches? The funding hasn't dried up yet, but I did notice that um, the last proposal for PEPFAR has, uh, has a big drop. I think there's about a billion dollars fewer that they're requesting for 2018 compared to like the last seven years. But that has a lot to do with President Trump. I don't know how uh, stable that plan will be. Um, but if it does start, um, you know, drying up a, a, as the epidemic improves, which maybe take a while since there's a long way to go, um, I think we're going to see increased competition for a while, you know, until the money really dries up, um, which, you know, could be decades. I don't see pharma groups and, you know, condom manufacturers pulling back anytime in the near future. Ross Benish, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on here. Ross Benish is the author of The Sex Effect, Bearing Our Complicated Relationship with Sex, this year from Sourcebooks, from which World Policy Journal excerpted his article in the summer issue, Aiding and Abetting, Why Western Fundraising Fails to Stop the Spread of AIDS. 
also featured in the WPJ summer issue, cover line, Justice Denied. You'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils disruptive New Berlin, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Caroline Preston, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vasquez. I'm David Alpern.